Can't get too much prayer. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Anyone else here think that this idea of changing your clock twice a year is ridiculous? Who thinks that that is absurd? We we ought to revolt. Uh, It is the dumbest thing. I'm sure that when they started this 100 and whatever years ago, there's probably a reason for it. Uh, Something about farming or I don't know. But whatever that reason was, it no longer exists. Let's stop it. This is dumb. 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 All right. In my humble opinion. But I'm always right. All right. Uh, hey, that, that Kingdom Undone thing, here's the thing. I, uh, I will tell you that I uh, am a theater critic of sorts, movie critic. And uh, I, I tend to be quite uh, critical of Christian plays in particular. Uh, my, my experience, they tend to be a little cheesy sometimes. But this one's not. This one is really good. I'm telling you, it is, I saw it last year at Kingdom Undone. And um, if you can make it out, I think you'll, you'll get blessed by it. Uh, it's, uh, and, and the $20 uh, deal is, that is, I think the, the tickets are supposed to be normally 45 So you're getting a good discount. So go out there and see that play. It's really good. And the only thing I'll say in, uh, as a prelude to the message is that if I seem a little bit uh, haggardly or shabby or, I don't know, disheveled uh, and tired and raspy voice, it's because I've been taking care of grandkids for 10 days. All right? <laughs> this is... <sighs> Today's the last day, uh, but uh, it's been quite... It's been wonderful. It, is, I, it has been wonderful, but uh, man... Uh, raising kids when you're 55 is way different than when you were 25. A little bit. Kids are just a lot harder now. Huh? Okay, so we are today, we're continuing this series uh, in, uh, called Kindred, where we're looking at the tribe and tradition that we align ourselves with. Because we see in Scripture that, that the people of God are always embedded in history, and they always receive and pass on a tradition, because uh, we're to be aware that we are part of something that's much bigger and much older than ourselves. And we want to bear witness to the truth that God has been present throughout history, and God's always had a people throughout history. And we want to be able to point to these people and say that is a version of us in the past. It's good to have people that you look up to in the past and that are, are kind of your heroes. Uh, Paul said to uh, his, his, his folks, follow me even as I follow Christ. And we're never to be involved in personality worship or anything like that. But it's good to have people who model, who live out uh, the faith as you understand it and to be able to point to that. I, I love the fact that when I, ever I'm talking to somebody about the faith and, and they bring up, as they very frequently do, uh, what about all the terrible things that were done in history and in Jesus' name and all that? I'm able to say, well, that, it, to me, that is not the true church. The true church never kills because the true church looks like Jesus. Uh, dying on the cross for his enemies, not conquering his enemies. And then I can point to a tribe throughout history. This, the Anabaptists of the 16th century were themselves tapping into a dissenting tradition that goes back to the 5th century. And what they were dissenting from is the religion of Christendom that I've talked about in each of these messages. This is the religion that arose in the 4th and 5th century when the church, unfortunately, was granted all of this political power uh, because of Constantine's alleged uh, conversion and so the church and the state were fused at that point. For all intents and purposes, it was fused. 
Um, and uh, this is the church that thought it was going to conquer the world in Jesus' name and use the sword if necessary. Because in this church, what happened is they just Christianized uh, this pagan conviction that is as old as uh, fallen humanity. And that pagan conviction is that the way you win in this world is by conquering or at least controlling the opposition. So that's how the world runs, the survival of the fittest. You want to win? Well, then you have to conquer whatever's opposing you. And so now this just became a religious principle. And Jesus becomes one more warrior God. Like we need another one of those. The vision that got this whole thing going with Constantine was the vision of Jesus as a warrior God, where he says, hey, go and fight in my name. And uh, the church saw that as uh, a vision of God when they should have seen it as a vision of Satan, in my opinion. And now Jesus, instead of carrying the cross, he carries the sword. Ah, well, there's always been groups that have said no to that. That is not, that's not manifesting the kingdom because the kingdom always looks like Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus never carried a sword and killed people to try to get them to convert. <laughs> Where do you find that in the Gospels? And these dissenters usually lived rather short lives uh, because the church, because it's got that pagan conviction, it's a conquering church, militant and triumphant, Whenever people would dissent, it would just squash them. We'll see a little bit later, it invented some magnificent machines to help them uh, get heretics to recant. The rack, for example. Torture people in the kingdom. I never got that. Now do you believe? How about now? Does our argument look, look a little more persuasive now that you're on fire? It's like, uh, Well, our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers didn't see it that way. And I have to say four mothers. I'm not trying to be politically correct when I do this. Um, But uh, the the reality is is that, as I mentioned last week, that that women, this is one of the reasons why we identify them as our tribe, women played a a very strong role in the birth and the expansion of the Anabaptist movement. There's Anabaptist preachers and and teachers uh, who who were women. Uh, Women were, um, they were treated as equals by the state when it came to um, uh, killing these folks. Um, they, they would kill women right along with the guys. And so we have to refer to forefathers and foremothers, even though foremothers is an odd term. Uh, that just shows sort of the patriarchy of, of the language, doesn't it? Uh, we say forefathers, but not foremothers. But um, when we're talking about the Anabaptists, we need to include both. And so we've been looking at the way that these Anabaptists uh, of the 16th century are our forefathers and foremothers uh, because they embody the distinctives that Woodland Hills Church believes in. We share the church beliefs of the church universal, the historic Orthodox church. Um, but there are some distinctive, rather atypical, distinctive things that we hold to. And the tribe that, that manifests these the best are the, the Anabaptists. And so they believed that the kingdom is not just about believing in Jesus. It's about uh, having a relationship with Jesus that empowers you and transforms you to live like Jesus. That's the kingdom. That's why they, they didn't believe in this concept of the church invisible, the invisible church. That was a Christendom concept. You can't tell who's, who's, who's in or who's not. The Anabaptists said, sure you can. The church, if it's real, it looks like Jesus. It has that flavor, it has that attitude, that mindset, that humility, that sacrifice. Uh, it's not about just believing, it's about being transformed. And so Woodland Hills believes that, and so there's an alignment there. We at uh, Woodland Hills Church believe, as the Anabaptists did, that Jesus is the full revelation of God. He's not just part of what God looks like. He's the complete revelation of God. Colossians 2 says that the fullness of the Godhead 
dwells in Christ. Everything that makes God God is there and is manifested in Christ. And so we read the Bible uh, through the lens of Jesus. Uh, all the Bible is divinely inspired, we believe, but it's not all equally authoritative. Authoritative. Um, and when you read it through the lens of Jesus, you see that some of it is there to be a negative object lesson. A shadow that points to the reality. Really changes the way you read the Bible when you read it through the lens of Christ. Um, and then we saw last week that, that we agree with the uh, Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers that the church is not a building, it's a people. It's all who submit to the, the reign of God and who therefore are, are aspiring to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and to be his hands and feet in the world. That is the church. It's not a building. So today we're going to look at uh, two ordinances of the church, two covenantal ordinances. They're sometimes called sacraments. Uh, and, and these are baptism and communion. Uh, we'll find that the distinct way that the Anabaptists held to baptism and communion are also the ways that Woodland Hills has taught about baptism and communion. So we're entitling this, this message, Blood and Water. Yes, the blood referring to uh, baptism, of course. Oh, no, the blood referring to communion. Though he told you, I mean, I've been raising grandkids for 10 days. Um, and the water referring to baptism. All right, blood and water. Let me say a preliminary word before we get into this. Uh, this issue of baptism and communion, it's hard to believe this, but uh, from the 16th century to the 18th century, there was almost nonstop war surrounding these doctrines and other doctrines as well. But throughout Europe for, for two centuries, there was this inter-Christian fighting, and I'm not talking about you know, having theological debates. They were killing each other. Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War, it actually goes back even before that, but um, you have all this bloodshed going on. Over, and the kings and the feudal lords who were uh, rallying up the troops to fight their rivals, um, they had economic and political interests in mind, but they would rally people uh, on the basis of the theology. One country would be Lutheran, another one would be Calvinist, another one would be Anglican, another one would be a Catholic, and they'd be killing one another. And the masses were doing it for theological purposes. Again, manifesting this core conviction that the way you win, the way you win in the world is by conquering the opposition. You fuse the church and the state and add that conviction on top of it, and you're going to have different Christian states killing one another. And it is, I think, the most satanic thing on the planet. Because all violence is evil, but violence in Jesus' name is double evil, triple evil, infinite evil, because you're, you're, you're not only committing the evil of violence, but you're, you're bringing disrepute to Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus saying to his disciples, okay, here's the deal. I want you to go and, and start killing each other, all right? Uh, fight one another over baptism. No, it's, it's insane. But that's what happened with Christendom. Uh, uh, nonstop wars. Now, fortunately, thanks to the Peace of Westphalia in 1666, I think it was, uh, we have a truce, and so we're in the Western culture, anyways, we don't kill each other over theological disagreements. Uh, but plenty of folks wish they could. That mindset is still around, this Christendom mindset. And we, folks, must never be part of it. I, I, I on Friday, got a, an email from a friend who uh, sent me part of uh, a transcript of this radio show that had happened just a few days earlier. Um, it's a, the a radio station of, uh, that uh, is the Southern Baptist Convention, I, their radio program. 
And I don't know, I've never listened to it, but um, it, it was, it was, inc- was mind-blowing. I, I say, I've got this friend on the East Coast who wrote this book uh, about Old Testament, violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, and something I'm very interested in. He tries to solve that problem very differently than I do, and his solution is, is pretty radical, uh, and it's caused quite a controversy. And this, this radio station, they couldn't burn them alive physically, but they burned them alive verbally. It was just vicious. The way they just sliced and diced and called for him to be fired and all this other kind of stuff. Now, I don't agree with my friend. I've got a different thesis. I wish he would have, you know, been able to read my book before he wrote his because he could have avoided some of his problems. <laughs> I appreciate the fact that he sees the problem. I mean, it, it, and I said to him that, you know, this is going to cause quite a stir, uh, but he says, I got to do it. And he's the most wonderful. He and his wife are just wonderful, humble peace-loving, God-loving people. I mean, they're wonderful people. And it hurts to see them being you know, killed on this radio station. But that's the same Christendom mindset. We must kill the opposition, or at least control the opposition. Discredit them. See, the Bible tells us to do everything in love. Do everything in love. Everybody say everything. 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 That includes discussing theology, Every thought, every word, every action should manifest love, and love always looks like Calvary. And so I've always taught here from the pulpit that if if ever you're in a a disagreement with somebody on theology or anything, if you find that winning the debate is more important than manifesting love, Christ-like love to the person, then do the kingdom of God a favor and shut up. Stop. Because even if you win, you lose. What it means to win is that Whatever happened in the argument, you maintained an attitude of Christ-like love. We, so we're going to be discussing, we believe what we believe, and we're going to be discussing differences of belief. And we should be okay with that. We, can't, we shouldn't pretend like we don't have differences of beliefs. But we, as we do it, we have to always bear in mind, and don't get sucked into this demonic Christendom mindset. We have to always have our bullseye as Calvary, manifesting Calvary-like love, the cross kind of love. And we have to do it with a sense of humility and lowliness and uh, with an attitude that we are the worst of sinners. Paul says everyone should be, be reciting that saying. And, and we, we must never let uh, our disagreements sow seeds of hostility in us or cause us to question a person's sincerity or their salvation or their status as a child of God. Uh, it's fine to disagree. I disagree with my friend. But you got never get pulled into this crucifying of a person's character or whatever. Okay, so let's talk about baptism. And then we'll move on to communion. Jesus, just before he ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, Christendom had, from the 5th century on, been practicing infant baptism, the religion of Christendom. Um, and you even find uh, the, some, some folks doing that a little bit before then. But the Anabaptists notice this. Jesus says, make disciples, and then he says, baptize them. And the them refers to the disciples. Go make disciples, and then baptize the disciples, and then teach the disciples to obey all that I've commanded you. That's what it means to be a disciple. You, you're submitted to another. You're being d- d- disciplined by another. And so the Anabaptists said that baptism should be reserved for disciples. In fact, baptism, they believed, was the initiation into the life of discipleship. It's joining the community of disciples. 
Uh, joining the bride of Christ. It's a betrothal ceremony that uh, brings you into the corporate bride of Christ. Um, and so they, they rejected infant baptism. This is uh, what you find throughout the book of Acts, where we have the recordings of people being baptized. Acts chapter 2, Peter, right from the get-go, says, Repent and be baptized, which implies that repentance is a precondition for being baptized. Then three verses later, it says that uh, those who accepted his message were baptized. So apparently you have to be old enough to understand and accept a teaching. And then in chapter 8, it says, when they believed of the Samaritans, it says, when they believed they were baptized, both men and women. So belief is a precondition for being baptized. And then in Acts 18, it says, the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And so on and on it goes. Um, the the precon- precondition, we here at Wilderness Church believe in line with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers that uh, the condition for being baptized is that you want, you, 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 you want to be a disciple, which means you repent, you turn from an old way of living, you believe the message, you commit to the message, you submit to the message, you, you, you are putting yourselves under the commands of Jesus, and baptism is your identification with the death and resurrection of Christ, saying, I am going to live a Christ-like life. I'm going to commit to doing that. Uh, and so here again, we at Willow Church are in alignment with the Anabaptists of the 16th century. Now, here's why that's a big deal. It's not just about the technical thing about who should be baptized or what mode should you be baptized with. It goes much deeper. Because as we've seen in each of the messages so far in this series, the religion of Christendom fused together the church and the state. Which meant that when you're baptized into the state church, you're not just baptized into the church, you're baptized as a citizen of the state. And the Anabaptists said that is giving the state way too much power. In fact, that is putting the state in the position of God because the state is now claiming to have the right to bring you as an infant into the kingdom of God. The state is claiming to have the, the ability to uh, give you saving grace because that's what uh, they viewed baptism as doing. Uh, the, this implies in the 16th century that the state has the authority to give you your identity and to uh, claim your ultimate allegiance as you're growing up. Uh, and so what, what was at stake in this baptism issue is not just the technicality of how to be baptized and doing it the way that the New Testament does it, but it's really about what is your vision of the kingdom and what's your understanding of salvation? Is the kingdom and salvation something that you can inherit by virtue of being born in a certain country and claimed by a certain state? Or is the kingdom and its salvation something that you have to choose at a responsible age? And the Anabaptists said the kingdom and salvation is nothing other than a relationship that you have with the king through Jesus Christ. It's not a a legal thing that a state can confer on you. It's a relational thing, and relationships have to be chosen. They cannot be inherited. So the Anabaptists believe it's It's very important to emphasize that this is something that needs to be chosen. And they boldly proclaimed, and they were willing to die for this, as they said, that neither the state nor the church nor any other authority or any other person has the right to say that they can bring you into the kingdom or that they can uh, confer on you saving grace. And neither the state nor the church nor any other authority or any other person has the right to say that they can confer on you your identity uh, and, and claim your ultimate allegiance 
Only God can save you. Only God can claim your ultimate allegiance. Only God can give you your identity. Only God can bring you into the kingdom because only God is the king of the kingdom, you see? And so they, 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 they totally renounced. They renounced the legitimacy of the state. They said it does not have the authority that it, that it claims. And so the defenders of the state, well, they saw this as an act of subversion. This is treason. This is a declaration of war. You are renouncing the state. You're, you're subverting the authority of the state. You're inviting uh, chaos. That's why they were known as anarchists in the 16th century. Uh, you're, you're, you're repudiating the state. And that is why all the versions of Christendom, the religion of Christendom, both Protestant and Catholic, agreed that the Anabaptists have to die. They have to die. Uh, they're subverting the state. And we here at Woodland Hills Church, we, we, we stand in agreement with that tribe and that tradition that has dissented from the Christendom religion because we believe that the kingdom and, and salvation are, in fact, about a relationship. Not a legal status that anyone can confer, but a relationship that has got to be chosen. We believe here at Wilderness Church in agreement with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers that only God can bring us into, bring a person into the kingdom because only he is the king of the kingdom. And so we believe with them that baptism means that we are renouncing any other king. You can't have two masters. If Jesus is king, no one else is. And so it's, we, we, we renounce that we are under the rule of any other person or any other organization or any other state, any other political regime, any other government. And we submit to it, because, but we do so only because God tells us to. We submit to authorities for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, submit to the authorities. But we don't do it because they've got some intrinsic authority over us. No, we have, we've got one king, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we, we stand in agreement with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers that only Christ alone can save us. And only Christ alone can save the world. And so baptism means that we are committing to put all of our hope for salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. And we're putting all of our hope for the salvation of the world in Christ and Christ alone. So baptism means that we renounce all other hopes, all other claims. You know, governments can help some people and programs can help people and you know, certain other people can help people. That's fine. But ain't nobody out there that's going to save you or save the world other than Jesus Christ. So we, we, we don't put any hope in government to save anything, to save the world. We don't put hope in, in any ideology or any philosophy or any person, any candidate, any program to save the world. Our trust is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Amen. And nobody, nobody, we agree with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers that no one should define you. No one should define you other than Jesus Christ, and he does it on the cross when he says you have unsurpassable worth. That's your definition. That's who you are. You're a child of God who's got unsurpassable worth. And so baptism means that we renounce uh, getting identity from any other source. Uh, we commit to uh, saying we will get our idea, what we think about ourselves and everybody else. We will get that from Christ and Christ alone. And so it means that we renounce every other possible source to confer an identity on us. And a main task of discipleship is to be a disciple of your mind, where you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. You take every thought captive. And so you begin to notice 
the voices in your head that don't agree with what God said about you on Calvary. And, and you renounce the identity that you maybe inherited from mom and dad and grandma insofar as that identity doesn't line up with what God says about you. And you renounce the identity that maybe you've inherited from the culture or you've inherited from the media or from friends or, or from movies or from any other source. If it doesn't agree with Jesus Christ, get rid of it. Dump it now. Delete it. Get it out of your computer. No, no. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And for that reason... We agree with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers that our allegiance is to God and his kingdom. End of story. Uh, we're not going to be having our ultimate allegiance pledged to any, any state, any government. We renounce allegiance to any other secret societies or any other clubs or, or any other programs or any other philosophies or any other ideologies. In fact, our ultimate allegiance isn't even to other loved ones. No, our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and to Christ alone. He claims us. He's our creator. He's our savior. He's the, the word of God and the son of God, the perfect manifestation of the image of God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so all of our allegiance is given to him and to him alone. And for thinking straight, whatever commitments, whatever, whatever other commitments we have, the secondary commitments should be aspects of our commitment to Christ and his kingdom. Uh, our, our allegiance to our spouse should be a, one, one of the ways that we show our allegiance to the king, you see? Uh, because he's the one who tells us to have these other commitments. And so we here at Woodland Hills Church stand in line with this tribe and this tradition uh, that this is what baptism means. This is why it's a big deal. Now today, it doesn't mean all the stuff it meant in the 16th century, but what was behind it is still the case. That, that with our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers, we understand that, that following Jesus is an all-or-nothing proposition. And it's something that you have to choose. You cannot inherit it. No one can do it for you. No one's going into the kingdom riding on someone else's uh, coattails. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter you know, how you look. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. What matters is do you have that relationship? And that relationship has got to be chosen. That's the big deal about baptism. Now let's talk about communion. I only have six minutes to do it. Woo! Well, look at I can be, I can, I, I can be succinct on this. For a number of reasons, because of a lot of different influences, the religion of Christendom came to believe that, that the Lord's Supper, uh, when you take the bread and the wine, that it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ when the priest says some words over it. It's called transubstantiation, because the substance, they believe, is transformed into a different substance. It becomes flesh and blood. As a kid, Catholic boy, going into First Communion, this freaked me out. I was freaked out. The idea that I'm going to have someone's flesh in my mouth uh, just freaked me out. And the nuns, I, I, you know, being the obsessive ADD person I am, I just badgered the nuns and the priests when they're teaching us about this, about, you know, I want the details here. <laughs> you know, and I, I thought I could taste blood when I took the first... Yeah, yeah. But see, now all the reformers disagree with that. The Anglicans, the Lutherans, uh, the Calvinists, they all agreed that... that that wasn't what Jesus was teaching. Uh, but they also all each had their own way of trying to retain some of that by holding that Christ was in some unique way present in the bread and present in the wine. So the Lutherans, for example, taught consubstantiation, uh, which, which means that, that Christ is a kind of along with. And so it was uh, Christ is along with the bread and, and the cup. And, and so everyone had their own way of, of trying to hold on to some kind of uniqueness in the, the, the substance of the bread and the wine. And the Anabaptist said, no, we don't need to get involved in any of that kind of speculation. Because they saw, and we here at Wilderness Church agree with this, 
that the language that Jesus uses around the Lord's Supper, when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me, this is typical covenantal language where a thing stands in the place of something else. It's called the sign of the covenant. Now, the sign isn't the covenant, but it's the sign of the covenant. It points to the covenant, and it's there to help us remember the terms of the covenant. Whenever God in the Bible made a covenant, he gave people a sign to remember it by. It's there to remember what God has done for us and promised us. It's there to remind us also of what we then have promised to do to God and to be faithful towards him. Covenant involves both. So they saw it as a sign of the covenant. Now, for that reason... There's two other things that follow from this that are distinctive. Number one, because it's a sign of the covenant, and a covenant involves two parties, the Anabaptists saw that communion isn't just about us remembering what Jesus did for us. It's also about us remembering and renewing our commitment to imitate him. Everyone, probably most people here were taught, as I was taught, that communion is all about just focusing on Jesus. Now, it certainly is the focus. But it also involves a renewal of our commitment. That the, the cross represents not just the, the love that God shows towards us, but it represents the kind of love that we're to now, because of this relationship we have, it empowers us to manifest that same love back to God and to our neighbor and even to our enemies. And so in communion, we're renewing that commitment to live a certain way. The second thing is that the Anabaptists understood that, what they emphasized this more than, than, than others, that uh, communion is to be a community uh, uh, event. It's a, a community meal. That's why it's called communion. Uh, we're we, we to do it with others. And they understood that the others that we're supposed to do it with are those who we have, we've invited to help us live out the covenant that we're now renewing. The proper context for communion is an intimate community. I said last week that they saw the the, the church as a monastic community, but one that didn't separate from the world, but that was rather incarnated in the world. And they saw it like that because they understood that we can't possibly live out the radical call to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and sacrifice like Jesus. We can't possibly hope to resist the pull of the culture that goes in the opposite direction unless we're doing it with other people. You cannot do it alone. And so the community is supposed to be the community that helps one another, the bride making herself ready. You see, preparing herself. Uh, and so we here at Wilderness Church have always taught that the best context for communion isn't a large community where we don't know most of the people. It's rather a community where we have an intimate relationship with people. Um, and there's a beauty that you capture in that intimacy that you can't possibly replicate in a larger context. For example, I have um, uh, folks that I, I, I do life with. Uh, we, once a month, we try to once a month uh, invite some other friends, and we get our kids and our grandkids, and we meet in someone's house, and we worship God together, and we break bread together. We have communion there. And, and the informality of it is just beautiful. Um, it's like a couple months ago, it was my turn to say the words of, of the covenant when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And as I'm doing this, and, and it's a kind of a tender moment, one of my grandchildren come, and they just dive on me. <laughs> they jump, and grab, and I almost spilled the, the juice. And you know, they, they start, they want to wrestle. And so I'm doing communion while my grandchild is trying to wrestle with me. Um, now, man, if I did that at that age, the nuns would have, <laughs> would have been bad. But see, here, in this context, it adds to the beauty. I mean, it was funny, we kind of giggled, but some of us got choked up because of the beauty of this. 
It's like Jesus says, a lot of little children, children to come to me. And um, th- there's a beauty there. And so the, the best context is, is an is a intimate group of people. Now, we're also aware that most people don't have those sorts of communities or where, where you're comfortable breaking bread yet together. We're hoping that, that in a couple of years we will have more people in those kind of communities. But this is why we've always had community several times a year in a larger context. Some people ask us, in fact, we get asked this on a regular basis, why don't you have communion more often? And the reason is because we want to be encouraging people to do that with the folks that they have uh, invited in uh, to help them live out the covenant that they make in communion. It's an event where we're saying we together are, are, are renewing our vow to live like the cross, and we together are, are, are committing to help one another do that. Um, and so we're all in process, so we'll continue to have communion here several times a year in a larger context, all the while encouraging people to also do it in smaller context. So uh, I want us to prepare our heart to take communion. We're going to first uh, worship God with another song, and it really drives home in a beautiful way the beauty of this covenant and how it's, it's God manifesting beauty towards us, but then also us, the bride, recommitting ourselves to, to him. Listen to these words and participate in it. Get a picture of this. And then um, I'll come back and, and I'm going to give a, we're going to read together an ancient Anabaptist liturgy surrounding communion. Uh, it is powerful. But uh, when the ushers come forward as I lead us in this prayer, Father, thank you for the beauty of this covenant. Thank you for this sign of the covenant. We're so marvelously uh, and concretely displays your commitment to us and so beautifully calls us to replicate that in a commitment to you. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Prepare our minds to participate in this beautiful covenant, the Lord's Supper. Amen.
unfaithful and walked out our husband and children chased after other men found herself being abused and used all of her own doing the husband pursues her goes after her calls off for her and finally wins her heart back and now she's beautiful because of the beauty of the husband and that is the bride of Christ that is us how beautiful and it's because we're learning how to reflect his beauty we don't have it on our own the bride is beautiful radiant as a groom is making her clean and whole you're beautiful you're beautiful I want us to prepare to enter into this time of the Lord's Supper taking communion in a way that helps us to remember that we're part of a bride that is much bigger and much older than us part of a tribe and a tradition we're receiving and passing on something that is beautiful and so we're going to recite an ancient Anabaptist liturgy that I have uh, modified and shortened and uh, put in our lingo, but it captures the heart of this Anabaptist uh, liturgy. It was written by a man that I just find to be so exceptional and so uh, wonderful. His name is Balthazar Hubmeier. And Hubmeier was this priest who was also a professor. He was known for uh, having a keen intellect and incredible rhetorical and writing skills, a true intellectual. And he could have had a very nice career and, and had a great academic reputation and possibly lived a long and comfortable life. But in 1525, as this Anabaptist revolution is, is exploding, he, uh, he becomes convinced that the Anabaptists, in fact, are preaching the true gospel. And so he joins the tribe, and he's baptized in the tribe, and now he's going to use his skills uh, to further the kingdom vision uh, that is being espoused by this tribe. Over the next three years, he was twice captured and put in prison uh, for several months at a time, and uh, was there close to starvation as they would give him a small ration of food and water. And daily would be tortured on the rack. The rack is uh, a device that the church created. Uh, it's, it's unthinkable that a church did this in Jesus' name, but it, it is one of the most, if not the most painful forms of torture as a person is stretched to the point of being ripped in two. And they do this to try to get heretics to recant. Now I want us to remember that our Anabaptist forefathers and foremothers were not superheroes. They were ordinary humans like you and me. And so I'm not ashamed to tell you that Hubmeier twice recanted his faith. He was human like you and me. As we think about the unbearable uh, mental and physical torture that he would be in, put in solitary confinement for seven months at one point, then taken out daily to be tortured like this, um, maybe we shouldn't judge him too harshly. But what is amazing is that as soon as he was released, this is, this is why he was released, but as soon as he was released, he would revoke his recantation and start preaching again. The second time he was released, he went to, became a missionary in, in Moravia, and they, they say that, they estimate that, that over 6,000 people were converted and baptized under his ministry in Moravia. 
just, uh, it, which in the 16th century is a revival of almost unprecedented proportions. It's, it was amazing. Um, it's astounding that, that even though in these three years, uh, the life expectancy of an Anabaptist leader was about three years uh, in 1525. Uh, but in those three years, even though he was in prison about half the time, he, he, uh, he found time to get married uh, and to um, uh, be doing this ministry, all traveling around doing this ministry, converting all these folks. And he also wrote a number of, of short books on topics, uh, theological topics, Defending the Anabaptist faith. He wrote one of, one of his books is a treatise on adult baptism, defending adult baptism. And um, uh, some were considered to be the best defense of adult baptism yet to this day. An ingenious man, it, it, truly extraordinary. But on March 3rd, 1528, the authorities caught up to him and he was arrested. He was once again put on the rack and tortured, stretched for seven days. But this time he would not recant. On March 10th, then he was taken out to the public square, tied to a stake, and burned alive. But he died uh, the Christ-like way that the Anabaptists were known for. Um, We have several eyewitnesses of this event, this execution. And they say that as the executioners were lighting the wood underneath him, he, he prayed, he cried out, Oh, my gracious God, grant me grace in my great suffering. And then as the flames reached his legs, he had the presence of mind to turn to the crowd that had come out. And I don't get it. The crowds used to come out and witness this. It was their form of entertainment or something. But he, said to the, he asked the crowd to forgive him for any wrongs that he had done. And then he gave, granted forgiveness, prayed forgiveness for all who had wronged him, including the people who had just lit the fire under his feet. See, that's, that's dying the way Christ died. As Christ forgave those and prayed for the forgiveness of those who were torturing him and had crucified him. And then when the flames reached his upper body, he cried out, Oh, my heavenly Father, Oh, my gracious God, the accounts say. And then when his beard and hair were caught on fire, just before he died, he cried out one last time, Jesus. And one account says, she says that she heard more joy in that cry than pain. It was as though in his last moment of his life, he sees Jesus welcoming him with open arms. And so, Hubmeyer is a hero that I could point to and say that that represents the kingdom that I understand he, he died like he lived. He bore witness to the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to read a, a confession that he wrote for his congregations. Uh, 6,000 who came to embrace this faith. Um, it's a modified, adopted version, but it captures the heart of it. And you'll see as we're reading through, there'll be an appropriate place where if this is your heart and if this is your commitment, this is an expression of, of the, the, our side of the covenant, you see, God, the cross is, is, represents both what God's promises to us to be this kind of God, and it's also our promise to Him to be this kind of a people. And so if it's your heart to, to commit to this, then at the appropriate time, just say, I will. And at the end, we'll all say, Amen. So we just stand here as we read this together. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you make this real in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, 
If you aspire to love God before, in, and above all things, in the power of his holy and living word, and if you desire to serve him, honor him, and adore him, and to subject your will to his divine will in life and, as Hubemeyer would later do personally, in death, let each say, I will. Brothers and sisters, if you commit to loving and serving your neighbors and to lay down your life for them if necessary, and if you commit to honoring your parents, obeying earthly authorities according to the will of God, and to do this in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us, let each say, I will. If you commit to encourage and admonish your brothers and sisters in Christ, to make peace, to keep unity, and to seek reconciliation with any with whom you are in conflict, And if you commit to abandon all envy, all hate, and all malice toward anyone, and commit to loving your enemy, to do good to them, to pray for them, and to refrain from retaliating against them, let each say, I will. Brothers and sisters, if if you desire to publicly express before the church the covenant commitment you have just made by sharing in the Lord's Supper and to testify to the power of this bread and this cup, to serve as a living memorial of the unfathomable love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord, by whose grace we are saved, let each say, I will. So let us now, brothers and sisters, eat and drink with one another. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may God grant each of us the power and strength to live out the commitment we have just made, thereby displaying to all the world the loving character of our gracious Lord, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, can I have the bread? Thank you. Uh, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. And so when you come together and eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. It's an ordinary cup, but God fills ordinary things with extraordinary significance. He fills ordinary people with extraordinary power and love and insight. And so he raised the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant. This, is, this one will last forever. So when you take the cup and drink together, I do it in remembrance of me the blood that is shed for us. So we here at Wilton Hills Church have open communion, it's sometimes called. And that just means that if you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, we encourage you to share the Lord's Supper with us. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, we encourage you to become one right now. And uh, that just means you surrender your life to Him. You commit to being a disciple, disciplined by Him, and then go and take communion with us. Those who need gluten-free bread, we have it right behind the camera here. Uh, and just come to this table. Otherwise, there's tables on the sides of the auditorium. And as we're worshiping God, and I encourage us to put every ounce of our our attention, our imagination on Jesus as we're singing here, and vision who we're singing to and what we're singing about. Oh, the Holy Spirit can so use that. And as we're doing that, when you feel it's appropriate, time's right, just go and, and, and take communion. If you are here with some people that you have... Uh, you share life with, you, you help one another live out the, uh, the kingdom, I encourage you to go together and, and uh, take communion. You might even exchange the elements. Just go to the side, out of people's way, and exchange the elements and, uh, and take it together. 
you want to take it right at the table, that's fine. If you want to take it back to the chairs and take communion that way, that's fine too. We don't have a lot of rules about this. Uh, just go as the Lord leads. So Heavenly Father, now we surrender this time to you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to come. And as we sing, let the, every word uh, create a picture in our mind to deeply envision uh, your love for us and our love for you and envelop us in this love. Help us to fall into the infinite abyss of love uh, through the avenue of the cross as you unleash the flood of your love on us right here. Let the beauty of that love, that cross-like love, that self-sacrificial love surround us. Let it be the air that we breathe and we receive as it comes from you towards us. And then, God, we, we, we internalize it and let it flow through us towards one another and out into the world. We are your bride that you are beautifying let this sign of the covenant be a renewal of our vow to you and a reminder of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. affinity to uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer. As I was studying him and uh, getting to know some of his writings and stuff, I just felt a kinship. And someone just a few minutes ago said they felt the same thing, like he's almost a pastor of ours in the past. And uh, I didn't realize this, but he was martyred on March 10th. Today's March 10th. I just, I, I did, it didn't occur to me. I mean, it's, uh, and there's something important about this. I, I, there's something important here. See, this is, this is why it's, it's important to be connected to the past. You know, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, it says in Hebrews 11. And they encourage us. 
you know, and, and this is just about seeing our forefathers and foremothers. And, and, um, and, and Balthazar, when he was martyred 485 years ago, you see, he was bearing witness to that love that we were just singing about. Um, Book of Revelation says that they, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb, by loving not their own life, but, but laying down their life for others. And this is precisely what he's doing. He's a witness to us. And, and in some ways, he's still a pastor of ours. I, I know we Anabaptists don't have saints, but, but if we did, he could be like our patron saint. You know, We look to him, and, and his life and his teachings, his liturgy, are still shepherding us. You see, it, it goes on. And so we receive the tradition, and we pass it on. And, and this is why being connected, I feel such, there's such an importance to this. I, I've never quite felt it this strongly before. Thank God for, for Balthazar. Thank God for his life. Thank God for his witness to us. He was victorious. He won 485 years ago. He was held by God. See, it's the opposite of, of, of you win by crushing your opponents. No, in the kingdom, you win by laying down your life for opponents and living this, this Christ-like way. He was victorious. And nothing could separate him from that love of God. How high, how deep, how wide uh, is the, the love of God? Praise God. It's infinite. It's infinite. And, and it always envelops us and engulfs us. It's all reflected on Calvary. Calvary is like this doorway to an infinite abyss of God's love, an ocean of God's love. Praise God. Manifesting God's love to us and manifesting our then commitment to live a cruciform life. I, I, I'm going to close in prayer. I would like to have prayer teams to come up here. And feel free to come up and pray with these folks. Or if you just became a disciple today, uh, I encourage you to come and tell these folks about it so you can get started on that discipleship walk. But as we leave here, let's, let's covenant together to live this cruciform life, a cross-like life, uh, manifesting God's character to everyone we come in contact with by how we are willing to sacrifice of ourselves for others. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, uh, oh, this very unusual um, kingdom thing. God, for, uh, thank you, God, for helping Paul Eddie find this guy and, and putting it in my heart and to study him and use him. And, and who knew? Uh, this is his martyrdom birthday, his birthday in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and Father, I thank you for him. God, I, I thank you for the tribe and the tradition that we are a part of. And continue that good work here. And as each one of us leave here now, uh, I pray, Lord God, that we do it with the mindset that we are called to be ambassadors, witnesses to your beautiful character and your beautiful love. And every person we contact, every prayer we pray for others, every word we speak, every thought we think, God, uh, continue to grow us into the likeness of Christ, individually and collectively. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.